This morning we resume our journey through the epistle of James that we actually began back in August. And in every sermon that we have, uh, every passage we've looked at, we've dealt with the subject of trials to one extent or another. And last time we considered that often the thing that is lacking in our understanding of trials and And one of the reasons that we struggle with our trials is the fact that we lack wisdom. And so James invites us to seek wisdom to help us to see our trials from God's perspective. And in our text this morning, James helps us to focus upon the reward for endurance in our trials. And then he he also takes what, what in the text seems to be an abrupt turn and speaks about temptation. And he really gives us an analysis of temptation that sometimes arises from our trials. And as we consider this, we want to learn how to respond to trials and temptations in a godly way. So before we read this text, let me pause and and pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, you have given us your word and we desire to hear it. And we desire to sit under its authority because it is authoritative over us. It is inspired by your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, would you illuminate it to us this morning? I pray that you would quicken our hearts, make us alive to receive your word with gladness. Lord, may it be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and a morrow, and be a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our heart, Lord, we ask. I pray that your word would, would go in cutting and come out cutting this morning, Lord God, for we need it. Lord, we, we so often guard parts of our heart, and so, Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would pierce even to those parts of us that, that we, we guard too often, Lord, to our own demise and to our own hurt. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this morning in his holy and inerrant word. I'm sure many of you have seen or heard of a person caught in some sin that might say something like this. I'm not sure what came over me. I just did it. I I wasn't thinking about it. 
Or perhaps you were that person. Perhaps you have thought to yourself, I'm not sure why I responded in such anger. I just couldn't stop myself. Or I'm not really sure why I clicked on that image on the computer, but before I knew it, I was in a place where I knew I shouldn't be. Perhaps you are like others who have faced trial with difficulty and struggle and and have doubted God and said, I just don't know how a good God could bring this thing into my life. If you see yourself in these descriptions, or if you've ever faced trial or temptation, then James has a message for you here. And that's all of us, because we all face trials and we all face temptations. And James helps us to understand these things and helps us to know how to respond to them. Because he shows us first the reward of steadfastness. Secondly, he gives us a very helpful and practical analysis of temptation. And finally, he helps to put it all in perspective as he reminds us of God's purposes in us, in his people, what he's doing and who he is. As we consider verse 12, we see a connection with verses 2 to 4 that we looked at a few months ago, where James has told us that we should count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that seems antithetical to what we, how we approach our trials in our human nature. But yet that's what James tells us. And there, as we looked at that text, we, thought, we sought to understand how we should consider our trials as something to rejoice in, as difficult as that may be. We, we know that God is at work in trials. God uses them to complete in us what he is doing, to, to work our sanctification, to work our salvation out through those trials. If you remember, as we thought about these things, we thought about it as a refining process, as the heat of our trials causes the dross to rise to the top so we could, that could be removed and we could be more complete and we can, be, we can progress in holiness through our trials. It may appear there's little reason to the things that happen, but they, our trials are not just a stream of, of bad luck. They're not just pointless events with no explanation. Yes, we, we may not know or be able to understand completely all that is happening because they seem to surprise us and come out of nowhere, but we can rest assured that God is at work in them. He is ordering all things for our good and His glory. Our trials shape us. They shape our Christian character in ways that are often unpleasant at the time, but are necessary for our sanctification. And that promise of Christian maturity should motivate us to endure, to be steadfast in our trials. However, in verse 12, James gives us a different motivation as we think about our trials. He says that the one who remains steadfast is blessed. There is blessing in endurance. We talked about steadfastness. We said that it is a fixed direction and a firmness of purpose. And it means that that we continue to follow Christ. We keep our eyes on Christ. We remain steadfast in the midst of trials, knowing that He is accomplishing His purpose in us. 
And there's blessing in that. The word blessed here is the same word that Jesus used in his Sermon on the Mount, the the section that we call the Beatitudes, which means blessed, where Jesus was, was not just pronouncing a blessing upon certain people that exhibited the characteristics that he was showing, but he was saying, this is the blessed life. This is the life of Christian fulfillment. And so James is, is borrowing on that picture, and he says, the life of Christian fulfillment involves trials. It involves you seeking to grow in your steadfastness in the midst of trials. There's blessing in this life, but there's also the promise of eternal life, the eternal crown. And James lifts our eyes off the circumstances and says, there is a waiting for you a crown of glory. Scripture speaks in several places about eternal rewards and often talks of them about in in the sense of a crown. We know a crown is, of course, used to denote dignity and position, but often in Scripture, Paul talks about it being the reward at the end of a race. And, And here in James, as in the book of Revelation, where the term crown of life is also used, it's the reward for faithful endurance and perseverance. Is the, it is the sure reward for faithfulness. The promise is sure because it comes from our covenant-keeping Lord. And it is given to those who love God. As I, as I was reading this and, and rereading it and thinking about this text, and I, I saw there in um, verse 13 that that crown of life is promised to those who love Him, I thought, now that's an interesting turn of phrase because we might expect it to be given to the one who is faithful. The crown of life is for the one who remains faithful. And yes, that is certainly in the background. Or we might also think, well, it it would be given to the one that doesn't complain in the midst of their trials. But no, James says that the crown of life is promised to those who love Him. We endure because we love God. If you this morning are walking a toilsome road, if you are in the valley of a trial, walk that road in submission to God who loves you and do it out of love for your Savior who gave Himself for you. We endure not just by toughing it out. We endure it out of love and as an act of devotion to our Lord. One commentator said, Our progress to the crown is expedited not by our powers of endurance, but by the depth and reality and pervasiveness of our love for Him. We live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our heart. What was it that our Lord Jesus asked Peter after He had denied Him and shortly before our Lord ascended back into heaven? He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? He asked him three times. So I ask you, do you love your Savior? And may that give you endurance in the midst of your trials. And that leads us to our second point, which, as I mentioned earlier, seems like an abrupt turn as James now talks about temptations. To some, this this seems abrupt, but... We see a connection in the language, in the word tempted, and the word trial. And often, temptation arises in the midst of our trial. Often, we are tempted when we are not viewing our trials properly. And the difference 
between our trial and temptation is the source because trials are external pressures that came that come upon us in unpleasant circumstances and a temptation is something that arises within us when we don't see our trials properly James here seems to be concerned that the temptations that will always accompany the trials that they be rightly considered The first thing that James tells us about temptations is that we must never blame God for our temptation. Now, you may be thinking, oh, I would never blame God for temptation. I know temptation's wrong, and I would not do that. Yet, remember how easy it is to blame others for our mistakes and our sins. If we're late for a meeting or an appointment, our minds are often busy as we approach the appointment thinking of excuses for our tardiness. I know because I've done this. You know, we may say, oh, it's the traffic, it's the Houston traffic, or it was the weather, or some other circumstances that prevented me from being where I needed to be at the appropriate time. Or maybe it's, it's an anger issue in your heart, and you say, if that person didn't push my button so much, I wouldn't get so angry. Yet I ask you, who is responsible for your emotions and the things that come out of your heart? Well, you are. Yes, there are circumstances that are frustrating and hurtful words can be painful, but anger is an emotion that flows out of a heart that is not fully submitted to the rule and reign of God. We are too easily drawn into this blame game. Humans have been doing it since the first sin, since the fall. We read about it in Genesis 3 where Adam said, It was the woman that you gave me, Lord. He blamed his wife and then he blamed the Lord that gave him his wife. And then Eve turned right around, and who did she blame? She blamed the serpent. It was the serpent that tempted me to sin. We have been blaming others for our sin for a long time. It's often God that we blame, especially in the middle of our trials. If we face financial difficulty, it's, it's easy to blame God and, and question His provision. If we're suffering physically or we're enduring grief, it's easy to blame God and and doubt His goodness. And in so many circumstances, it's easy for us to place the blame upon God and question His goodness. And James says, don't ever do that. This is not to say, of course, that we should not pray and seek relief for, for in our trials. The psalmist gives us examples of that in Psalm 6 and and 13, and in various places, particularly in the Psalms, and he cries out, and he, he even says things like, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, Lord? I, I don't see you. I don't feel you. And, and we are invited to do that. Yet, if you notice, in those Psalms, the focus of his lament and of his cries are upon God. He recognizes God as sovereign. He recognizes that God is good. And he's saying, Lord, I need you. I need relief. Please come and help me. But what James is talking about here is something different. It is a blame. And it is saying, God, you're not good. God, you are tempting me to sin. You are leading me into evil. And James says, no, that is not the God that we serve. God is good. He is perfect in holiness There is no sin or evil in him. God is never inclined towards sin. Therefore, he will never entice us to sin. He does test his people. He tests them to prove them, to grow them, and to bless them. 
But God is in no way sinful, and He will never seek our harm or lead us into sin. Temptation does not originate with God. Well then, you may ask, where does temptation come from? And James anticipates your question and my question this morning, and he tells us, where are we to look for that source of temptation? Well, we don't have to look far, because we look in our own hearts. It's true in every temptation that no matter what brings it on, the source of temptation is us. And I think it's important that we slow down and think about verse 14 and 15 carefully here. Because if you're not familiar with this text, it really helps us to see a window into our own heart and the progression of temptation and how it transpires. It's almost like a, a play-by-play account and, and where, where you're watching a football game and, the, and, they, and they freeze the frame and they circle the player and they say, look, this player's going here and this player's going here. And James is saying, stop, look, see what is happening in temptation. Beware, because this is what happens. He shows us the progression of sin And the metaphor he uses is the development that we see in conception and birth. The conception of a baby occurs and what transpires over the next nine months is growth that will eventually result in birth. And when things are as they should be, there is an inevitability to it. Birth will take place. Now, I have been told that sometimes that last month of pregnancy seems like it will last forever, but there is an inevitability to birth. It will take place. And James warns us that there is a progression to temptation and sin that once started will lead to places we don't want to go. And the result of unchecked temptation is not a joyous occasion like the birth of a child, but spiritual death instead. And it starts with desire. Now, this could be any desire. God gives us desires. We, we have basic human needs that, that we need to have met. We need to sleep. We need to eat. We need to, there's things, and there's good things that he has given us to enjoy. But when good things become ultimate things, they become idols. Even natural desire can be twisted and perverted in our minds to something sinful A recognition of money as a blessing from God can quickly become an idolatrous love of money that Scripture tells us is the root of all evil. A God-given desire for sexual intimacy within the marriage can quickly become lustful and sinful when it's taken out of that context. So what is the source of this temptation? It's our own desire and what they do to us. And James uses really vivid language to grab our attention to help us think about the seriousness of it. He says these desires lure and entice us. That word lure has the idea of being drug away, like a fish that eyes an insect or what he thinks is an insect in the water, and he strikes at it only to realize there's a hook, and he will soon be drug to his death. So are our desires. Because of the sin that dwells within us, our desires are not always pure and good. If we are in Christ, and and James is writing to believers here, we need to remember that the penalty of our sins has been paid, and and the power of sin has been broken. We've we've heard 
message after message recently from Romans 7 and 8 talking about the, the power of Christ in us and we need to be reminded of that. But yet the presence of sin is very evident and it's often evident in our desires. The English Puritan John Owen was very aware of this and he reminded his readers of this. He says, the sin that is in you shall not have dominion over you. We need to remember that, yes, sin, we do battle temptations. There is indwelling sin in the life of a believer, but it should not and does not have dominion over us. Sinclair Ferguson is, one, is a modern pastor. Many of you know his, his teaching and his writings, and is, is so helpful. He is really a modern-day Owen scholar, and he's, he's written about this, and he talks about this progression. And he says, first, that sin deceives by drawing the mind away from its anchor in Christian holiness, end of quote. So sin takes away our minds from our sinfulness of sin, We need to remember that we are sinners. Yes, we are saved by grace if we are in Christ, yet we still battle sin daily. If we become insensitive to the work of the Spirit within us, if we become slack in our love for God, if we become dull to God's awesome sovereignty and majesty, then we become dull to sin. Secondly, Ferguson says that when the mind is thus drawn from its duty, the affections are more readily enticed. So it begins in our mind and then it affects our desires, our affections, the things we desire. Okay? And so, and and he, he quotes Owen, and Owen talks about, he says that sin will use a thousand wiles to hide it from the terror of the Lord. And this is so convicting as we think about these things. Owen says, the hope of pardon is used to deceive us in the moment of temptation. How many times have you faced a temptation and the thought has come to your mind, oh, I can commit this sin and I can ask forgiveness for it? Future repentance is used to hide our sinful desires from the fear of the Lord. We think, oh, I can be forgiven of this. Yes, you can, but you grieve the Holy Spirit when you, when you choose to sin. We should never use those things as an excuse to sin. Present importunity of lust. In other words, sometimes the power of temptation is so strong that it blinds us to the evils of sin. We become dull to actually the sinfulness of sin. These challenges are more and more are ours as we battle the war with sin. We must know our enemy. Sin affects our desires, our affections. And then the third step, and and we see it so much in in our text here, involves the will. These desires begin in the mind, and a mind that has become dull to the sinfulness of sin, and then our affections towards sin are awakened, and they give birth to sin in the mind and the will. At this point, sin has so deceived us into thinking that evil is good and that that somehow our freedom in Christ means that we have freedom to sin. No, it means that we have freedom not to sin. It means that we have freedom to love God. And then the next step is the sinful actions. And this is because we have already acquiesced to sin in our wills. This is not to say that only sinful actions are sin. Some would teach that it's only the the carrying out of those desires that are actual sins. No, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he took sins like adultery and murder and he brought them into the heart. And he says, if you 
Lust after a woman. If you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery already in your heart. And he says, if you hate your brother, you are guilty of murder. So we need to recognize the sin at its earliest point and seek to kill it then. James tells us the end of this. The end is death. Sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. Let me pause here and say that, yes, we believe that saints of God are eternally secure. That when, when you are given the gift of eternal life, it is just that. It is eternal life beginning in the here and now. That is a, that is a blessed assurance, and, and we believe that the saints will persevere to the end. But we should not let that blunt the warning of James 1, 14 and 15. There is a progression to sin that begins with our minds and our desires. And if we don't kill sin in its early stages, it grows and becomes harder to kill. If a person willfully continues in unrepentant sin, that person should rightly consider whether they are truly a child of God because James says the end of this progression is death. And verse 16 adds an extra warning upon that where he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers to remind us of the deceitfulness of sin. Now, most of our Bibles put that in a paragraph with verse 17 and following. However, I think it's there to remind us of the deceitfulness of sin, that we need to be aware. Sin is deceptive. Know its works. Be killing sin, lest it be killing you. And the negative progression that we see in verses, verse 14 is really in opposition to the positive progression of those who face their trials correctly. Rightly understood and received trials in the, in the life of believers should lead to steadfastness, to Christian maturity, and that grows into to spiritual fulfillment and ultimately comes to its full fruition in the crown of life that awaits those who love Him. This is the progression we must pursue. Steadfastness, endurance, faithfulness, blessedness, and eternal life with Jesus. And that leads us to our final point, God's purposes in us. What is God doing in all this? Well, we've recognized we don't always see and know and understand everything that God is doing in our trials, but James tells us some very good things that we need to take to heart, and they are about God himself, who he is, He tells us, first of all, that God is the immutable giver of all good gifts. Let that sink in a little bit. God is the immutable giver of all good gifts. He is immutable. He never changes. He never can change or will change. And He is the source of all goodness. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. He has given us so many good things. And The world tells us again and again and again. In fact, it seems like our whole society is built upon the fact that that we are being told every day we need more of something. We need more of this. We need more money. We need more sex. We need more leisure. We need more time. Whatever it is, the world's telling us, don't be content. You don't have enough. Buy more, get more, something. But yet, we need to pause and reflect upon the good things that God has given us. We learn contentment in this crazy culture that we live in by reflecting upon God's goodness and the blessings we receive from His hand. 
If you're here this morning, you can thank God for the strength you have to be here. If you're married, you could and should thank God for your spouse. If you're not, you can. there's blessings in singleness. If you ate regular meals yesterday, you're better off than millions in this world. God gives us so many good things that we take for granted. I read a devotional this week that said, Stop and be thankful that the God of amazing grace created that tree or cliff or mountain or whatever it is that you're beholding in nature. That God created it and gave you the ability to see it, to understand it, to enjoy it. He chose you to experience its pleasure at that moment because He is the God of tender, patient grace. And God delights in giving His children good things. If we lack, He tells us to ask. He says in in, in, um, Matthew 7, Ask and you will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And then He goes on a couple verses later and He says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? He is our Father. He does not change and He gives us good things. James tells us that God is the Father of lights and says that with Him is no variation or shadow due to change. This is the only time in Scripture where that phrase, the Father of lights, is is presented in this way, and, and we, we know that God is a God of light. John, that's a predominant theme through the, the book and the epistles, the gospel and the epistles of John. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all, it says in 1 John. Uh, John 1, 9 calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. And we know that, that the first thing that God created on day one of creation was He spoke and said, let there be light. And then on day four, he created the objects of light that we enjoy. The sun, moon, and stars. And every day at the close of creation, uh, the close of that day of creation, he said it was good. And in contrast to those objects of light in our sky, which are constantly moving and changing, God does not change. There are no shifting shadows due to God's nature because he does not change For I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3, 6 says. And not only is God the immutable giver of all good gifts, His goodness is shown in salvation. How do you know that God loves you and wants what good is for you? Look at what He has done for you in Christ. Look at the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God, out of His mere good pleasure and electing love, set His mercy upon His children. There is the premier evidence of His goodness toward you in that He has given you salvation. It was not something that you chose because we were lost and spiritually unable to choose. Apart from God's regenerating and electing love, we would never choose God. It is all of His mercy and grace that we were spiritually brought to life. It says, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. And that is the foremost example of His love and His goodness to us. And this salvation that we enjoy in the here and now, as God's children, is just a foretaste of what is to come. Verse 18 says that we are a kind of first fruits. Now you've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand this concept and what that actually meant, this, this idea of first fruits. The first fruits were to be to set... As, especially aside as holy to the Lord. 
They were a reminder that God keeps His promises and will provide for His people. As I thought about this, I, I thought about how I love fresh tomatoes. And if you're like me and love fresh tomatoes, you'll, you'll identify with this story. My dad would always have a garden. And, and still to this day, my dad is in his 80s, and he still talks about his tomatoes ripening. So it would not be uncommon for me to have a conversation where my dad would say, oh, the tomatoes are setting on fruit, and oh, the tomatoes are ripening, and then oh, we picked our first tomato. Because that first tomato, you're, you're looking forward to tasting it. You're looking forward to receiving it, but not just that first tomato. You're looking for an abundant harvest that is to follow from that first fruit. You're looking for more that is to come. And that's what this idea of first fruits is, that that the salvation that we enjoy in the here and now is just but a glimpse of the glory that awaits us in heaven. We don't know. We don't understand. I have not seen or ear heard the glory that awaits God's children. But yet, we recognize His goodness in what He has given to us in the here and now. God has loved us with an everlasting love. And if you are saved this morning... Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, and sin no longer has dominion over you. Yet, this presence of sin is a reality, even in the life of a believer. And we must guard against it. We must continue to walk in the Spirit and seek to not fulfill the lust of the flesh that war against the Spirit, as Galatians tells us. And when we're facing trials, we must remember that God is at work in them. And there is a reward for those who remain steadfast in trials. We know that God is for us. We see that in the salvation that He has offered us and given to us. And we know that it is just simply a glimpse of the glory that awaits that is greater than everything, anything we have seen yet. Let us pray.